He is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. This keystone of our salvation is the most important evidence of His power to save to the uttermost. The Apostle John records the resolve in Jesus' preparation and sacrifice on the cross and the celebration of His glorious resurrection. Because He is delivered from the tomb, we can be certain that the redeemed are delivered from judgment and completely reconciled to God. That reconciliation includes the promise of eternal life. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. John composed his gospel to provide reasons of saving faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written that you may believe. Let's turn in our Bibles together to John 21 this morning as we continue our study in the book of John today. We're gonna begin in verse one. So that's John 21, verse one. After I finished college, I returned to my hometown and got a job back at my home church. That was a part-time position as I started seminary. And about a year and a half into serving on that church staff, I was offered my dream job to be the student minister at that church. The guy that was our student minister was named Steve. And I love Steve. I served under Steve for two different summers as one of his interns. And Steve was hilarious. He was a fun guy to be around. Everybody loved Steve. So he was leaving our church. And now I was gonna take his place and be the student minister in my own home church. It really was a dream come true. Now, granted, I was young and single and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, so I took the job, of course. And not too long into the job, I realized that I was in over my head. Our student ministry had around 300 middle schoolers and high schoolers combined attending on a weekly basis. And one particular Wednesday night, maybe it was my third or fourth week after becoming the student minister, I was leaving our large group meeting room where the student ministry met on Wednesday night. And things had gone really, really bad that night. I mean, it hadn't been good up to that point since I had taken over, but we hit a new low that evening. The music was terrible. There was lots of sound system issues and my teaching was awful. Uh, it was just a disaster. And as I walked down the hallway to my office after that, a seventh grade boy was coming towards me on the other side of the hallway. And he stopped in the hallway and he looked at me and he said, I wish Steve was still here. <laughs> to which I said, I do too, buddy. <laughs> and I did. It didn't take long for my dream job to turn into a nightmare. Ever been there? Ever wanted to give up? Ever wanted to quit? Ever written a resignation letter in a difficult moment? And this doesn't just happen in the area of employment, friends. It happens in marriage. Ever want to quit? And in parenting, you ever want to quit? There are times when we just want to walk away from it all. And if you've ever felt that way, you're in good company because a little week over the, a little week beyond them seeing the empty tomb, some of the disciples felt exactly the same way. See, we come to an interesting moment in the book of John here 
where having studied the end of John chapter 20 last Sunday, we've already gotten the storybook ending. Jesus appears to Mary. Jesus appears to the disciples. And our passage last Sunday said they were excited. They were glad about that. Of course they were. He was alive. He had overcome the grave. And even Thomas saw and believed. End of story. Roll credits. But John doesn't stop there. Instead, inspired by the Holy Spirit, John records a sobering moment of reality where the disciples want to quit following Jesus. They want to give up, which is understandable, and I bet most of us in this room can relate. So let's see what happens and stand together if you're able to and honor the reading of God's word. Let's see how this plays out. Again, we're gonna be in John chapter 21, beginning in verse one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated now. What we're looking at this morning is the third appearance of the resurrection of Christ to just the disciples. But in total, the New Testament records 10 resurrection appearances that took place over 40 different days. And in our passage, we're looking at some point after the eight days later statement that was made in John 20, verse 26, when Jesus showed himself to Thomas. We don't know how much later it is after that point, but it's important to remember that Passover is now over. And so the disciples were headed north, back to Galilee, which was for most of them their home. 
And it's certainly where they and Jesus did a bunch of ministry. But now the main reason they're in Galilee here is because Jesus told them to go there. Both Matthew 28 and Mark 14 mention that Jesus said he would meet them on a mountain in Galilee after his resurrection. Now, there's a whole lot in this passage that we won't have time for today, but I believe that the big idea of this passage is that true disciples persevere. You and I have bad days where we wanna give up. We even have difficult seasons that we go through and we wanna quit. We can even despair and lose hope for a time. However, a Christian doesn't stop following Jesus. True disciples persevere. And we see that in this passage. And I'm gonna confess to you this morning that, that this message is one that I am mostly preaching to myself. I pray that you're blessed by it and encouraged as well. I wanna read you something from McGregor's Statement of Faith, which is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is a, a paragraph from section five entitled God's Purpose of Grace. Our Statement of Faith says this, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now, I think that paragraph is beautifully written, but what's more impressive are the 49 different scripture citations from the Bible that support that in our statement of faith. By the way, 20, uh, 10 of those 49 passages come from the book of John <laughs> that we've been studying. Most notably, John 10, 27, and 28, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, this is what the reformers called the perseverance of the saints. It's also referred to as the endurance of the saints. And the perseverance of the saints is exactly what it sounds like. And it's summed up by our big idea this morning that true disciples persevere. And I see two big observations from these 14 verses um, that we're looking at this morning. Number one on your outline is our sinful desire to give up, give up following Jesus. Our sinful desire to give up. If you're self-aware and an honest person who follows Jesus, you know the temptation to give up is a very real thing. But that temptation is not unique to you and it's not unique to me. But it's also evident in the seven disciples. Letter A on your outline is the seven disciples. Now, obviously all 11 disciples didn't travel together as they headed to Galilee, but evidently these seven seem to have done that. And in verse two, look at the list. Peter is the first one mentioned on the list because frankly, he was the leader. And then the sons of Zebedee are also mentioned, which are James and John, John being the author of this particular gospel. Thomas is also mentioned, whom we studied last Sunday. 
And there was Nathaniel and two others that were not named. But notice where they are, friends. They're not on the mountain as Jesus instructed them to be. But as verse one says, they are down by the Sea of Tiberias, which by the way is just another name of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a bit like Hertz Arena just south of us on 75. Some of you know it as Hertz Arena. Some of you still call it Germain. Some of you call it Tico Arena. And if you go way back, you call it Everblades Arena. It's the same place. Just people call it different names. Same thing with the Sea of Galilee. But them being by the sea gives us an indication as to how unsure they are in what Jesus has already told them. They're already not being obedient to Christ. And if what he said is true, they were about to take Jesus's place in the world and carry his gospel message. So think about it. For the first time in three years, they are on their own, or so they think. And that's when we see the disciples attempted resignation. Let her be on your outline. Is the disciples attempted resignation. Look at verse three in your Bibles with me. Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So right off the bat, we get confirmation here as to how discouraged they are. We don't know how long they've waited for Jesus. Maybe they waited on the mountain initially or maybe they didn't. But it's clear by now, by them not waiting where Jesus told them to wait, that they're done waiting. And this is surprising because these guys are fishermen. And if you know a fisherman, you know one thing that's true about them is that they're patient for the most part. They don't easily give up. But these guys tried to resign from the role that Jesus gave them. And how'd that work out? Look, stay in verse three. Look at it with me. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught what, church? Nothing, that's right. Brothers and sisters, there are times that the Lord prevents his children from having earthly success because we are headed in the wrong direction. Hebrews 12, six says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. You know, there are times when God frustrates our plans in order to draw us back to himself. And he does that because he loves us. And if you're in a season like that right now, he may just be using your lack of progress or your lack of success to get your attention. Here, these seven disciples were being disobedient and as a result, God was not going to prosper them but it was so tempting for them to go back and do something that most of them had been doing before they had met Jesus. See, fishing for fish was second nature to these guys. But now they can't even do that. And why? Well, remember, Jesus had given them a new gig. They were now to be fishers of men. And like them, all of us who are in Christ today, we also have the job of being fishers of men. In our church's purpose statement, one of the measures that matters to us here is for us to be people who live missionally. And to live missionally definitely means that we share our faith, we articulate the gospel to people. But we do that because we understand we're not citizens of this world. We are ambassadors for Christ and his kingdom. That's living missionally and it's not something that these disciples 
could resign from, nor can we. So to counteract that mentality, what we see next is Jesus's rhetorical question. Letter C on your outline is Jesus's rhetorical question. Jesus asks a question in verse five. What is it? Look at it with me. He says, children, do you have any fish? (laughs) Now calling them children is not an insult. It's actually a, a term of endearment. Jesus loves these guys. They belong to him. But this question is rhetorical. And that means there's an obvious answer to it. In fact, in the original language, the question is phrased in such a way that it expects a negative response. Everybody knew what the answer was. Sort of like when a mama asked her child, you haven't finished your homework yet, have you? Same thing here. You boys haven't caught anything yet, have you? Their answer was no. But if Jesus already knows the answer, and he does, by the way, why does he ask this question? Well, friends, he does that to draw out a response of repentance and faith. And God does that frequently in the Bible where he'll ask a question to someone and he asks the question in order to draw out a response from them of repentance and faith. There's plenty of examples of that in the Bible, but I'll just mention one this morning. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, who had just disobeyed the only command God had given them, they, in the wake of their sin, were attempting to hide from God. So God asked a question, where are you? Now, God's not asking that question because he wants information. No, he's calling them to repent and trust in him. See, these disciples are frustrated here and they're tired because they've attempted to do something that is impossible. And that is to give up on following Christ. For a true disciple, that's not gonna happen, friends. Because if it does happen, it simply shows that the one who gave up was not a true disciple in the first place, i.e. see Judas. Brothers and sisters, the perseverance of the saints relies on the doctrine of eternal security. The Bible makes a very plain case that once a person is genuinely saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, they will always be saved. And because they will always be saved, they will persevere. Philippians 1.6, the apostle Paul states definitively, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, we are saved by grace, but we are also kept by his grace as well. And yes, the temptation to give up is a very real thing in the life of anyone who follows Christ. But true disciples persevere. And the reason true disciples persevere is because of what God does. That's number two on your outline. Number two on your outline, we see Jesus' faithful work to remind us of who he is. This is what God does. He reminds us of who he is. He especially does that when we gather together on the Lord's Day like we're doing now. We don't gather together today to be entertained. Nor do we gather together today to be motivated to live out some best version of ourselves. I hear that a lot these days. And that is one of the dumbest statements I've ever heard. Best version of ourselves. Good luck with that. It proves that the person doesn't know what they're talking about if they're saying that because they don't even understand how depraved they are. 
How tragic it would be if we spent our time together on Sundays trying to be entertained or be motivated to live some best version of ourselves. No, we gather together on the Lord's day to glorify God and magnify his word. We hold up the word of God, his perfect standard in order that we might properly understand who he is so that we might also understand who we are in light of who he is. See, we're never, we will never rightly understand who we are until we understand who God is. And for these seven disciples, Jesus reminds him of who he is. That's what we have next. Jesus' first reminder in verse six, letter A on your outline is his first reminder. Look at the beginning of verse six in your Bibles with me. What does Jesus tell him there? He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. Now just stop right there. Think about how improbable this whole situation is. They don't even know who the expert is that is talking to them from the shore. And the last thing any tired, hungry, and irritated guy needs is a suggestion. Amen? My sisters, that's a free tip. You might want to write that down. But part of the faithful work that Jesus is doing here is he's drawing their hearts back to him. They're not only open to his command, but they obey it. And they do that because he's reminding them that he is sovereign. He kept the fish away from their nets all night long. And in the exact moment that the disciples obey his command, Jesus causes the fish to swim right into their nets. Stay in verse six and look at how it fleshes itself out. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus doesn't beg them to do what he commands, but when they do it, he reminds them that he is sovereign. He's sovereign over the exact position of every single fish. And all fishes are under his command. And did you notice that his instruction was to cast on the right side of the boat? That just struck me as odd when I was studying for this. And maybe it's because we live in a polarized time where there's a lot of talk today about being on the right side of history. We hear the statements by activists and politicians that we must do this or do that in order to be on the right side of history. But friends, there's only one who is sovereign over history. And if you and I are following him, we'll always be on the right side of history. Who cares what the world says about this position or that position being on the right side of history? Jesus is the one who commands history. He holds it in his hand. And he's sovereignly orchestrating all of human history towards his purpose. That's the first reminder, but he's not done yet, is he? Next we see in verse seven, Jesus' reveal. Let her be on your outline as Jesus' reveal. This really is the big moment here. Notice that in the beginning of verse seven, look at it in your Bibles. John sees him first and he says, it is the Lord. And then Peter sees him. What they're seeing here is Jesus' reveal. 
Now, the Greek word that for reveal that's being used in verse one and some other places in our passage today is the same word that's used in 1 John to describe Jesus's second coming. Some of your translations may use the word appear or manifest in, in like verse one. But it means to see someone and recognize who it is. That's what's happening here in verse seven. And that's what will happen one day when Jesus returns. And that's also what happens now in salvation. Those who belong to Jesus recognize him. And when he reveals himself to them, that's when it happens. Remember, prior to this moment, they didn't recognize Jesus because he had not revealed himself to them. And that's a glimpse of how salvation works. See, there's a parallel in the resurrection accounts between people being unable to physically recognize Jesus and people being unable to spiritually recognize Jesus. Neither of those things will happen until he reveals himself to the person. Romans 3.11 makes it clear that no one seeks after God, no one. And 1 Corinthians 12.3 makes it clear that apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, no one's gonna submit to Jesus as Lord. Why? Because we're sinners and God is the initiator of salvation. He comes after us. He reveals himself to us. We don't find him. Friends, I said this before in this series and I'll say it again. There is only one final determinative cause of salvation. And it's not you and me recognizing Jesus, it's Jesus revealing himself to us. That's how we understand the bad news about our sinfulness. That's how we understand the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. It's why we love and follow Jesus. Because he has revealed himself to us in salvation. And once Jesus reveals himself, there's a response. Next on your outline, letter C, is the disciples' response. I just love verse seven and eight. Because Peter impulsively jumps out of the boat because he just can't wait to be with Jesus again. And that's so sweet, and it's so Peter. He's not gonna wait on a sailboat to move 100 yards to get to the shore. Which, as verse eight says, is how the other disciples got to Jesus. And this step by Peter is really a precursor to a bigger step that he'll take in the passage we're gonna look at next Sunday in the second half of chapter 21. See, there's two things happening in John 21. Jesus is restoring Peter and Peter is repenting. And John's not gonna let that part of the story go untold. He's gonna tell it and he does. One way to look at John 21 is that it's really an epilogue that prepares us for the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, Peter is the predominant leader in the first half of that book in the early church. So if we didn't have John 21, we might get to the book of Acts and go, now, wait a minute. Why in the world is Peter the leader of the early church? Didn't he deny Christ? Boy, isn't it good to know that failure in the life of a Christian does not have to be the end of the story. If there's repentance, it certainly is not the end of the story. Because when God produces repentance in us, repentance that's actually turning from our sin, our disobedience will not be the last chapter of our story. It's good to know that God can even use our failure for his glory and our good.
Look, if you're in Christ today and you failed massively, first, welcome to the club. And secondly, if you're willing to turn from your sin, there's a chapter 21 for you. Your story's not over yet. There's an epilogue written for you. Again, if you're willing to turn from your sin. Keep in mind, friends, true disciples persevere. So on the heels of of Peter jumping out of the boat, we see Jesus's second reminder. That's letter D on your outline. His second reminder. And that's in verse nine. Look at verse nine with me. There is an interesting reference in verse nine and it's a reference to a charcoal fire. And that reference is only used in one other place in the entire Bible, and that's John 18. We studied it about two months ago, and it was the night Jesus was arrested. Not long after Jesus was arrested, if you know the story, Peter denied he was a follower of Christ. And he did so in order to get into a courtyard to warm himself because it was cold that night, and he warmed himself by a charcoal fire. And as he was warming himself by that charcoal fire, he was confronted a few more times and each time he denied he knew Jesus. John's real specific to add that detail about the charcoal fire in chapter 18 and here in chapter 21. So why is that important? Well, Jesus was reminding Peter of what he had delivered Peter from. I believe the charcoal fire here in verse nine is the kindness of Jesus reminding John about his spectacular failure at the first charcoal fire. And it's Jesus reminding John about our Lord's amazing grace at the second charcoal fire. Friends, we can't appreciate the grace of Christ if we forget the lostness that he has delivered us from. It's good to be reminded of that. And it's hard to be reminded of that, isn't it? But it's an important reminder. The first reminder was about God's sovereignty. This second reminder here is about God's grace. Praise God for his grace. And so the second reminder is followed by Jesus's miraculous provision. Letter E on your outline is Jesus's miraculous provision. Look at verse 11 with me, if you will. And in verse 11, we find out how many fish Jesus blessed the disciples with. How many was it? 153, yeah. There's lots of theories and speculations about what the number 153 might mean. Does it have some deep, mysterious spiritual meaning? Uh, I don't think it does. I simply think it means that they caught 153 fish, which is a lot of fish. That's the point. It's more fish than these seven disciples could almost haul in. Definitely more than they can eat or even take home to their family. It's a lot of fish. But consider this, friends. Jesus's miracle here is actually a repeat of a similar miracle that Jesus performed, and that's recorded in Luke chapter five. I actually put that passage on the bottom of your sermon notes this morning, Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. And I wanna encourage you to read it this afternoon because that moment in Luke five is connected to John 21 here. Because in Luke five, three years prior to John 21, the disciples had fished all night and had caught nothing. Does that sound familiar? And then Jesus told them where to cast their nets. Sound familiar? And in Luke 5, 
They caught so many fish that night that their boats almost sank. But right after that miracle in Luke 5, Jesus called the disciples to follow him and become fishers of men. Think about it. He initially calls these disciples to follow him and he does it through a miraculous provision of fish after which they left their nets and that way of life to follow Christ. So now here in John 21, Jesus performs a real similar miracle to when he first called them. He's showing them that they still belong to him, that they don't need to give up because they continue to be fishers of men. They're still his followers. And how does he show them that? Well, he serves them. It just kind of makes me laugh that the risen Lord in verse 12 is making breakfast. (laughs) But he makes the disciples breakfast. He's proving to them once again that he is still faithful, even though a few hours ago they wanted to resign. And his faithful to them in this miraculous provision causes them to persevere, just as it does with us. Anybody in here need to be reminded today that our God is faithful? This moment is about these disciples being unable to meet their own needs. They couldn't be successful because they were being disobedient, but Jesus shows up and makes a provision for them. And by his actions, he conveys a message to his followers. And he essentially says to them, I am faithful when you fail. I am faithful when you want to give up. And you will persevere because of me, not because of you. I am faithful. See, they disobeyed when they tried to give up, but then they obeyed when they repented and that led to an amazing provision from Jesus. True disciples persevere. You know, I wish I could tell you that my dream job that became a nightmare actually became an amazing comeback story. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't because it didn't happen. It was a struggle all five and a half years that I served on that church staff. Actually, it got worse. A doctor told me during that time that I was on the edge of a nervous breakdown at the age of 25. And during those days, I looked into leaving the ministry altogether and finding another occupation. I almost gave up. But God provided He always does for his children. He was faithful in my failure. Now, he didn't instantly remove the circumstances I didn't like that I was in, nor did he respond to my urgent timeline. But each and every day, he made a provision to sustain me as I lived through that difficult season. And I praise him for that. And you know what? Many of you in this room can attest to the same kind of thing in your life. As it turns out, God was actually preparing me then for harder stuff ahead. And I didn't even know it at the time, but I do now. We say it a lot around here 
that God always does things for His glory and our good. And that's true. And by His grace and by the power of His Holy Spirit in us, He causes us to persevere. Brothers and sisters, that's why true disciples persevere. Because God is faithful. <laughs>